Colossians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. morning church and hello to those online and those that will be watching this later hello to you as well we are starting a new sermon series Woo! thank you thank you I need some energy today because I uh, we had the kids birthday party this weekend and uh, I chased around the bowling alley and the arcade my kids for you know a few hours and whoo tired today so I need some energy so thank you for providing that here today but as we uh, jump into a new sermon series, I want to tell you that uh, this sermon series may be a little different than some of our sermon series. And what I mean by that is whenever we uh, you know, get up to write a sermon and the pastors as we preach, there are many different aspects of preaching. But one of those is really the idea of teaching. And so this is really going to be a teaching series. Sometimes it's really good to get into a sermon and uh, to really focus on just using our intellect and our minds to really kind of understand faith. Now, part of this, of course, may sound like uh, if you're looking for a tear-jerking sermon to leave here today and feel all emotional, congratulations, you won't have that here today. So you won't need your tissues, per se, but hopefully our minds will be engaged. And really, the hope of that is not just our minds are engaged, but also the idea that when we truly know, when we have understanding, that a lot of times that helps guide right living, right? And so as we're here today, that's our prayer and our hope. Uh, G.I. Joe said it kind of like this, knowledge is half the battle, right? And of course, G.I. Joe was drilled into me when I was young. I watched many a G.I. Joe's, and knowledge is half the battle. So as we hear today, let us pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to take you back uh, as we look at this sermon series to uh, start off with this. I want to go back to the early days of Christianity. This is one of my favorite books. And if you ever never studied church history before, it is a fascinating read. It is absolutely wonderful uh, stories that are happening. And uh, this is one of my favorite books. It's, it's the story of Christianity. It's told by Justo Gonzalez, who's a, a well-known uh, theologian and historian in the church. And uh, I want to read this to you about like some early times of the church and what was written. It says this in a, kind of one of the introduction uh, paragraphs to a chapter. He says, the many converts who joined the early church came from a wide variety of backgrounds. This variety enriched the church and gave witness to the universality of its message. But it also resolu uh, resulted, that is, in a widely differing interpretations of that message, some of which threatened its integrity. The danger was increased by the syncretism of the time, which sought truth not by adhering to a single system or doctrine, but by taking bits and pieces from various systems, the result was that while many claimed the name of Christ, some interpreted that name in such a manner that the very core of the message seemed to be obscured or even denied. Let us pray. Lord, may the words in my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, one of the, the stories of the Christian church is this, is that, you know, you got Jesus, right? 
And Jesus, of course, ascends into heaven, get the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church is born, and Peter and all the apostles, they go out and they start preaching. And eventually, the confines of Judea, of Israel, that is, don't hold them. That goes, spills into the Gentile world. It goes all to the corners of the earth of people sharing the story of Jesus Christ and his love for all of us and the work that he did on the cross to save each and every single one of us. And as it spread out and did all these different things, of course, you fast forward in time, and after the letters of Paul are written and that first generation is starting to pass away, the church really kind of used all those different writings of Scripture and all the things that we think of Scripture in the book today, and they would use all this, but they never really made a list or anything like that. And what ended up happening was, as, as Christianity spread, sometimes it wanted to become more palatable. And so what would happen is people would take sort of bits and pieces of the Christian message, combine it with other bits and pieces of the kind of belief system that they already had, and you'd get this syncretistic thing that ultimately, when you looked at it, just totally devolved all of the Christianity and the meaning of what Jesus had done altogether. And what I mean by this is there were two specific ones about this time. We're talking about the early 100s and into the kind of the mid-150s, if you will. There was a time of the church where there was this idea of Gnosticism. And you go, wow, that's a really big word. But here was basically what it was. Here was the idea was that there are multiple layers of reality. And material world that we all exist in is fundamentally evil. It should not exist. There's only a spiritual realm. And eventually, basically, what needs to happen is that all of us need secret knowledge that will break through this material world into the next reality. And then we need the next secret knowledge to break into the next reality and on and on and on. Kind of like the movie, The Matrix. You guys remember the old Matrix movies, right? Where there was kind of this reality, but there's a reality above that and a reality above that and, and kind of all these different things. And this was the idea. And basically, they synced this with, with Christianity in many different ways. And they said, basically, this idea is that there's this eternal God that is so far out there we don't know, and Jesus is one of these secret knowledge things, and he, he passed along secret knowledge to his, his disciples, and if you just learn that secret knowledge, you will break forth to the next layer, if you will. And of course, uh, as this kind of started spreading and kind of becoming known, uh, a lot of the church said, that's not the message we received. They go, what is this, right? <laughs> this does not sound right at all. And another thing that happened about the same time was a guy named Marcion and what would be known as Marcionism. And so Marcion said this, he looked at, he, he kind of really didn't like Judaism at all. And so basically he looked at it and he said, I don't really want Jesus to be a Jewish. And furthermore, I don't really want the Jewish God at all. I want to make this a Gentile kind of religion. And so what he did was he took out all the Old Testament and then he went to all the letters of Paul and the Gospel of Luke and things like that and took out any references to the Old Testament, any references to Judaism, any, anything like that, took it all out because in his mind, there was the Old Testament God and there was the New Testament God. And so the idea was is that the Old Testament God was this God of fury and wrath and all these things, and that the New Testament God was this God of love and embracing. And so Marcion came along and basically he did this. He said, all right, there are certain scriptures, certain, certain books, and certain letters that are the real ones, and the rest of them are wrong, right? And so it's funny enough, but you may not know this in church, in church history, is the first list of like the official New Testament was actually by the heretics. <laughs> it wasn't actually the true Christians that tried to put them together. It was actually Marcion was the first one ever to do this. He put together what he called the canon and the list, and he said, these are the true ones, and the true Jesus, the true gospel, the true God that we serve, the loving God, is not found in the Old Testament. It's found in specifically these books that he had already taken and chopped up and redacted and done these different things. And of course, what happened is, is Christianity around the world said, that's not the message we received. 
And they're sitting there scratching their heads and they go, what is this, right? And so the church decided to act. And they did a couple different things. One, we'll talk more about this in later weeks, but they made a canon, the New Testament as we know it, basically the books of the Bible, if you will. They end up creating that. We'll talk more later. But the second thing they did was they created creeds. And the idea of a creed was this, is this is the boiled down, absolute essential beliefs of what a Christian believes. And what the message, not specifically what we choose to believe, but specifically what is the message that's been handed down to us. And so the first of these, we see actually evidence of it even in the New Testament already starting and in the letters of Paul, but we get to know it in a very uh, real way during this time is the Apostles' Creed. And the idea of the creed was really this, is that in a world where people were traveling and you'd encounter different ideas and different things, basically one of the things that was thought of is this, is a creed was like a token. What I mean by that is in the ancient days when you had like a general and you were at war or whatever, you'd have to send really important messages out to your generals if you were the emperor or whatever. And so when you sent your messengers, you would send them with a token, a literal you know, piece of something that only they would have. And so when they gave it to the general, and the general gave the orders or gave the, the idea, the general would know that this person was legitimately sent by the emperor. And so the creeds, how they were first thought of, is this idea is that it was the token. It was the idea of when you come across and go to another church in another part of the world and they ask you, what do you believe? And you start saying the Apostles' Creed. And they go okay, we know who you are. We know that you are the same faith of who we have all received. And so they created these creeds not only to teach the church what the message had been, but also it was ironically the proof of who, what we believe as a church. And in fact, if you ever heard that idea of like, what are the things you would die for? You know, in Christianity, what are the true essential things that if you lose them, you don't have Christianity anymore? That question's already answered actually for us. It was answered way back in about 100 20 AD, if you will, and 125, somewhere around there. And they got together and they basically said, here's what we believe. Here are the things we will die for. And in fact, if you keep on reading a history before Constantine, they did. Christians died for this in all sorts of different ways and said, no, this is the message and we will not give it up. And they declared the lordship of Jesus Christ against the lordship of the emperor. And Rome didn't like it. And other nation states and other places didn't like it. But the people said, no will die for this. And in fact, oftentimes they suffered the great martyrdom of that. What I find so interesting in the creeds is I've just been thinking about them a lot lately and going through them again. I find that there's this interesting little tidbit in them, and that is they actually went on to define the nature of the church. And it's kind of one of these things that's so succinct in all the creeds, it's easy to miss and kind of just kind of gloss over. But I've really been thinking, you know, as a pastor nowadays and really kind of focusing kind of on, you know, what's the idea of what does church, what is, what is the what does it have to be, right? What does a church have to be? And actually that answer, that's already been answered a long time ago by the, the ancient church. And if you ever look at the creeds, there's always a line in them where it says, we believe in blank, blank, blank church, right? And you may not know it, but there's a couple adjectives, one word adjectives that are put in there, but they actually don't just mean like little something. They actually stand for something really big. And you might remember them, right? It goes like this. We said them in our Nicene Creed today, but in the Apostle Creed, it goes one, Holy, you guys are looking at me like you never heard this before. Like, what are you talking about? Right? Catholic, right? And then it doesn't say in the Apostles' Creed because it's the Apostles' Creed, but if you go in the Nicene Creed, they add the fourth term, apostolic, right? 
And so these four things, I wanted us to just kind of think through what the church meant by this when they said this. What, what did they draw upon in their faith? What was the message that they heard that they thought, you know what, if we're going to define church, if you will, the way we think of it, in their terms they would say, what is the nature of the church? What is the essence? That if, if the church isn't this, then it can't be a church, was the kind of question that they had in the day. And they went on to define it in their creed. And for us to even kind of think about here today of what are those things. And again, it's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we're going to take some time to look at each one each week. And today we're going to be talking about one. Now, I love this because the idea of one is ironically means a whole bunch of things, right? You think one thing would mean one thing, right? But the idea of one actually has multiple layers of how it is used and how it's understood in the church. Now, first and foremost, what they meant by one is this, is that the church has to be obedient to the one true God. And so if you were going to make a list of the things that one means, what they mean by the one church is that it serves one holy God, right? And that there's not multiple gods out there in the universe. There's not a pantheon of gods out there. There's not miniature gods running around. There's one true God who made everything, right? That was one true God that's spoken throughout the generations and that we've understood and has come after us and eventually shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. One true God. Now, it's interesting because in the ancient world, uh, people struggled with this a lot. Uh, and so, you know, if you came from a Judaism background, you didn't struggle with the idea of one God, but the Gentiles did, right? And so a lot of times when you look at all the different heresies of the church, a lot of times they didn't know what to do with Jesus, right? Because the idea was this, is that we can't just have one God, right? We need more gods because that's what we come from. And so a lot of times they were trying to define Jesus not as fully God, but kind of like a half God or a miniature God or a little God, if you will, and that there was a supreme God beyond that that was immutable and knowable and all these different things. And so it's interesting when you think about the idea, but the Christian church wanted to specifically say, no, we serve one God. And then, of course, to make things really confusing for those who do math, Christians can't do math, right? Because they said, we believe in one God and three persons, <laughs> right? And everybody else said, don't you believe in three gods? And they go, no, no, actually, we believe in one God, three persons. And everybody goes, so you believe in three gods? And they go, no, 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 you don't get it. One God, three persons, right? And in fact, even today, we struggle with this. If you've ever tried to explain the Trinity to someone, you know, like you kind of grow up in the church and you hear about, well, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, if you go around and try to tell someone who's never really been in church before, and they go, so wait, you, there's one God, but you got three names for it? And, well, yeah, and they're actually three distinct people. Well, don't you believe in three gods? No, actually, they're all one. And you go, people go, what? It doesn't make any sense, right? In our minds, in our, in our way of thinking. And in fact, that part of the struggle was is that people were trying to put into terms, Greek terms, that is, and categorical terms and ways of Greek thought, what they saw revealed, in not only in Scripture, but what the message of the apostolic tradition had told them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the apostolic tradition and the Scriptures themselves that they read upon and knew upon and the message that everybody had received was this, is that Jesus was fully God. That God the Father was still present in heaven, but Jesus showed up and is fully God, fully human at the same time. And oh, by the way, when he left, he promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, which as we read in Scripture is actually another person and is fully God as well, right? And so they basically said, yeah, we know this makes no rational sense. But we believe in one God, distinctly in three persons. Now, there's so many ways that we get tripped up and think about this. One of the most popular ways to explain it is water, right? If you think of water, there's the chemical composition of H2O. And if you think about it, if you have ice, it's H2O. 
If you have water, it's H2O. If you have steam, it's all H2O, right? Yet you experience them in so many different, different ways, right? When you touch ice, it has a certain feel. It can be jagged. When you try to hold water, it slips through your hands. When you put your hand over a boiling pot of water, you feel the heat and the intensity. Yet, they're one thing, one essence, if you will. And that's kind of how the Greeks thought about it and tried to explain it to people, is that there's this one essence of God and distinctly three persons. And almost the ancients also, like, you think about different ways people try to explain it. They often would say something like this, that it's like three concentric circles, that if you look at them on top of each other, they look like one, but when you turn them, you actually see that there's three. Now, it's interesting to think about that, but in many ways, as Christians, we do kind of have to stop and say, God goes beyond our rationality, right? That God is bigger than we can really truly understand, and so even though this, like, in some ways it feels like you should say there's three gods, or maybe there's one God with two little tiny gods or something, but the Christian church has always rejected this, that there's one God distinctly in three persons, the person of God the Father, the person of Jesus the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit as well. Not only did they mean one God, but they meant one Lord. And so what they meant by that was that there's one name under heaven which all names will bow down before. There's one name, Jesus Christ, who is Lord. There's no emperor that comes close. There's no divine emperor that claims to be God that can come there. There's no anybody else. Jesus is Lord. And so they talked about this idea that not only were there's one God, but there was one Lord and that he was uniquely the way of faith and that faith specifically in him matters, right? This is the one Lord that all of us must come and bow before. When they talked about one, they also talked about this idea that there was one atoning act. And so Jesus, when he died on the cross, if you will, and you think about our lives, and many times we fail, many times we slip up and, and fall down, Jesus doesn't have to die again for us, right? That his first death was powerful over death that it actually is still creating and anew in us and constantly offers us forgiveness through what he has done on the atoning sacrifice on the cross that our sins weren't just swept under the rug but were paid for by God's self by the son dying on the cross as a sacrifice for us and that that one sacrifice is good for all time and that that death never has to be done again that Jesus has paid it all the sins that you've already committed, the sins that you're committing now, the sins that we will commit one day, even though our best efforts are to honor God with all that we are, that atoning sacrifice was enough. One atoning sacrifice. They meant one baptism. As in the church, there is one baptism, and baptism means a whole wealth of things. We normally think of, you know, things like repentance and stuff like that, but it also meant the incorporation into God's mighty acts of salvation. It meant that you were being sealed upon yourself being part of God's family, that you were entrance into the church and the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to you by the laying on of the hands of the apostolic tradition of people who had walked with Jesus Christ, carried on this message, and now it came to you, and you received it, and you're part of the church, that there is only one baptism of which we all become a part. And finally, the other thing that they really meant by one was there's one body. By that, they meant there's one church. Now, of course, if you know your church history, you fast forward in time, in about 1,000-something A.D., the church splits, the, you know, it becomes the Catholic church and the Orthodox church, and then, of course, if you go in the, the, ortho, uh, the, the Catholic church, you understand there's split after split after split after split after split. It's just a fractured, huge branching tree, right, that we are all in. However, 
every church within all those denominations, if you will, and every church from all those branches doesn't believe uniquely that they are uniquely only the one church, right? So we're United Methodists, but we look down the street to the Catholic church and the Presbyterian, well, it was down the street. We got to look to the next town for the Presbyterian church, but also, you know, the Lutheran church. We look to the interdenominational, the Pentecostal churches. Every denomination under the sun that lifts up the name Jesus Christ, and we understand that we're one with them. That ultimately all the things that divide us, God's going to come and settle for us, right? <laughs> that there's going to come a day where God says, hey, I'm showing up, and when God shows up, he's going to be like, all right, <clears throat> you guys had this wrong, you guys had this wrong, you guys had this wrong. This is the real way. And we all go, okay, right? <laughs> and it becomes really truly one church again, and we all go, ah, we made our mistake, we did our best, Lord, and God goes, I know, I was there with you, I, I know. You, you can't make a mistake, but I was with you, right? And, and it's one of these ideas that there is one church and whatever denominations and whatever ways we disagree on, there's truly only one church body of which we all belong. That every denomination is uniquely part of one part of that body. You know, it's interesting to think about those things, but when they said that there's one church, these are the ideas that they said. This is the thought of what it was, what it meant. And uniquely, as we think about today, for those early Christians, they look upon us today and they would say, be that church, right? Whatever denomination you are, whoever you are, be the church that has the oneness, this distinctive essence of who we're supposed to be. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, I see your brains are getting thinking. It's is good. I see you thinking. But nonetheless, when we really think about what it means to be one, it orients our actions to do right. And so let us continue to be in that presence of God. Lord, as we come here today, we thank you so much for your love that's always given to us, that's always present before us. That God, as we've talked about today, that early church had to wrestle with many different things, and in so many ways, people tried to take your message and to adapt it and change it to make it more palatable for their culture. People tried to actually just put in their own wants and desires and change it. And your early church had to come together and truly decide those essence of things that mean something. So God, as we're here today, we do remember, Lord, that you are the one true God, that you are the one Lord. You are the one who's paid it all for us, the one atoning sacrifice. You are the one baptism that we are initiated into God's holy acts of salvation given birth into the church. And that, Lord, we are one body, redeemed by you to be the people of God, and about all the other things that divide us, Lord, that you truly unite us all. And that one day we look forward to where we can truly understand as you do. See things with your eyes. And to truly all those things that separate us will once again bring us together through your love.